Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Mark Vacher and Tom O'Dell. Mark is an Associate Professor of Ethnology at the Saxo Institute, University of Copenhagen. Tom is a Professor of Ethnology at Lund University, Sweden. Mark and Tom have collaborated for many years on developing programs of applied ethnography. In today's episode, we are curious to know the reasons, methods and lessons learned. Mark and Tom emphasize the value of digging into the problem before starting to look for solutions. But how do they make it work? And how did they design a course that gives students the tools to do that? What are the skills students are expected to develop? And what questions to answer? Is there certain theory that helps achieve the goals defined by the program? Mark and Tom reflect on their own approach to ethnology, on the role context plays, different in Sweden and in Denmark, and on the importance of having the right colleagues to work with. Lastly, they offer advice for those interested in walking a similar path. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. We are here today with Mark and Tom. Hi, Mark. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi. Hello. Just a, a kind of a context to, to our listeners right now. I met you both at a wonderful conference in Klagenfurt um, about uh, the future of applied anthropology, I think, or how can academic anthropology land um, better into applied spaces. And I, I came across about the wonderful work that you do uh, within academia um, to, from your own perspective, look into how students can engage with applied anthropology or applying anthropology outside of academia. And I was so fascinated with your programs that I decided to make you an invitation to come on our podcast and share your wonderful work also with other anthropologists out there in the world that want to do the same thing. I am one of them myself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but before uh, we dive into the wonderful work that you do, I wanted to ask you uh, to tell me and our listeners a little bit more about yourselves. You're both established ethnologists, have taught uh, ethnology in an academic setting for a number of years. How does your path look like? How did you come up to do what you are doing right now? I graduated uh, as an anthropologist. I did a PhD in anthropology, in, in urban anthropology. And um, and then I got unemployed. I was unemployed. And uh, and, and, and out of luck and chance, I, I got a postdoc position. There was a vacant postdoc position at a new um, research center on, on housing, which was the topic was my, my, my PhD was in urban anthropology. And then housing was pretty close to that so i got a i got a position there um and then i got to work with uh with architects and economists and um i think my experience with with working with architects and and, and economists is is i think a lot of people will recognize you know my experience with working in interdisciplinary settings the first two but the first half year i was about to say two months I think we spend a lot of time defining each other. You know, I would I would tell the 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 architects what architecture should be and the economists how the economy works, and vice versa. 
But then luckily I got to stay there for a while. And then after half a year, I started to realize, you know, that I was actually working with very skilled people and they were skilled within their own discipline. And I took that experience with me. And ever since I've, I've made it my sort of my task to figure out what people are good at within their own discipline. And I think I, I try to teach my students this as well. When we work, when we collaborate with other disciplines, you know, instead of finding out that they're poor anthropologists or poor cultural analysts, I, 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 I encourage my students to, to explore how, let's say, the, the architect is a skilled architect and on what terms. And uh, I think that's what I brought with me into this program that we are about to talk uh, about, because I, working as you know, working applied, I think, is very much about knowing who you work with and who you present to and who you deliver to and who. And I think that's the most important part, probably, who is going to apply whatever you you uh, you develop uh, or share and i think that's uh, so that's kind of my path into this I, I try to stick to this experience that you know finding out it was a big epiphany to me that that that, that other disciplines or, or members of other disciplines are sometimes really good at what they do on their own terms within their own disciplines so i made i did a cultural analysis of of the other as other and i think that's that's my starting point, and that's what I've sort of stuck to in, in, in the program. Yeah. Wonderful. And just a short follow-up question before we go into Tom's background, uh, Mark. Do you have a particular research focus right now in, in the work that you do or a particular topic that um, you're busy um, researching? I've, I've, been, I've been around, I've been back and forth over the years, but I think, I think I've... Uh, Urban anthropology, but also housing and the notion of, mm. home, of home has stayed with me. And, and the cases I present to my students are very often related to architecture and urban planning. But, mm. but it's not, I mean, I, we go beyond that because it was just in my, in my case, the other, the, I collaborated with were architects. Uh, mm. but, but in many of the projects we do with students, the others can be, you know, from, from various disciplines. Uh, so. So it's still sort of urban anthropology slash architecture, notions of space and notions of home. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Tom. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I actually started out, um, I guess I get the best place to start is my mother. Uh, she was actually Swedish and I'm American, uh, but uh, she moved over to the United States in the 50s and I was born a little after that. I've always had this kind of interest about Swedish culture and what is Swedish culture, and it's such an exotic place. I thought it was a really strange place, and the best way to learn about it, I thought, was through anthropology uh, to get into that. So I did my bachelor's, my master's degrees in the United States within anthropology, um, and then I decided to leave the University of Minnesota after I got my master's and do my PhD in Lund. Uh, my thinking was that if you're interested in Swedish culture, why not study it in Sweden rather than Minnesota? Uh, so I came over to Sweden. I managed to get into the PhD program here uh, and did a, a PhD looking at the Americanization of Swedish culture. Um, and that had to do with issues of globalization and, and the movement of culture. Uh, I then moved on into a department of international migration and ethnic relations uh, in Malmö. I was there for two years, and then I got a permanent position in the Department of Service Management at Lund University. 
where I stayed for 10 years. Uh, and there I was working on uh, issues of mobility, tourism, uh, destination management, these types of things. The department was 50% economists uh, and managers and 50% people from the humanities and social sciences. Uh, so it was a multidisciplinary environment, which was really good for me. Uh, I was meeting people outside of the university. Uh, I started an open university uh, lecture series with the city of Helsinki, uh, their bequest on issues of sustainability. And slowly but surely, I was kind of branching out into work, working with other actors beyond the university. It could be cities, it could be municipalities, regions, uh, things like this. And then in 2006, 2007, the Department of Ethnology, where I received my PhD in Lund, uh, wanted to put together this Master of Applied Cultural Analysis program. Uh, and they wanted me to help them with that since I did have some experience working with actors outside of the university. And uh, I got involved with that at that point in time. And it was interesting because when I first went to service management, many of my peers saw me as a trader. Not all of them, but, but some. Uh, and not just in Lund, but ethnologists working with management. Aren't they the bad guys? Uh, and I said, well, if you can't have managers who understand power, gender, ethnicity, uh, what are we going to do? Uh, someone has to teach them. Uh, and that's sort of been my point of departure uh, since then. Uh, try to. I'm really interested in working collaboratively with people beyond the university. Hmm. Wonderful. And I... Both of you have, have built, let's say, uh, put together two programs of applied ethnography. And I, I'm very curious what, what in your view was missing from the space, um, that you are contributing with these programs to? And, um, what was the main focus and, and what did you think, what do you think it brings back to academic contribution? Um, and maybe an additional question. Why, why connect it? Why do you, what, what is the value in your collaboration? <laughs> I get to work with Tom. <laughs> That's a simple question, a simple answer. Okay. I think if I'm going to be honest with you, one thing which, uh, from the perspective of the University of Lund and ethnology here, was uh, an issue of relevance for our students. Uh, the introductory course in ethnology, when I first came to Lund in 1990, had over 100 students. Uh, when the department contacted me to help them. I think there were six students reading the introductory course. It was about survival. Uh, students wanted to know, what am I going to become? What is, how am I going to be employed? Employability became a key issue people were talking about. And so that was a strong reason for why we started to sort of brainstorm as to what can we put together for a new type of program which will actually be appealing to students. Yes, we're excellent researchers. Yes, we know what ethnology is. But it doesn't seem like anyone else wants to know about that. So what are we going to do? And that was a really simple point of mm -hmm. departure. You know, it was about survival also. Uh, yeah, I think I think in, in in Denmark the reason it's it's it started here was because we were in a slightly different situation maybe, but some of our alumni started to actually they 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 they, they built quite successful consultancies and. Um, I don't know what I don't know how to explain the, the exact difference between the Swedish and the Danish situation, but 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 also you say ethnology in Denmark you can only study ethnology in one place and it's in Copenhagen it's a University of Copenhagen or Copenhagen University which is the capital and uh, and Copenhagen like 
yeah, from from around the millennium, uh, started to 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 change dramatically, and, and it it has become this very sort of uh, as as a as a city, it has grown and uh, changed and become this cosmopolitan, quite famous city. I think it's a very famous also tourist destination, and and and, and it has literally become a cool place. Because of its, uh, you could say its cultural qualities and uh, not because of its, its production sites, but, but because it, it has become, uh, an, an interesting site to sort of consume. And, and this has sort of influenced the logic also behind the urban planning. And, and many of our students or some of our students, former students started to tap into this and managed to, to form consultancies that would consult the municipality in, in developing uh, in developing Copenhagen. So ethnology slightly changed with this urban urban change or, or development. So I think from the Danish side, uh, suddenly we experienced a new audience for our discipline. Uh, people got interested in ethnology thanks to our, our former students. And, and, and therefore, I, I didn't see that myself. I got hired after the program started. So I'm like, I was like one year into, in, into the program. I, I was, I, I got employed. Um, but I think this was sort of the logic behind it that suddenly there was a new audience, a new interest. And then I think my, uh, my colleagues who, who started this in collaboration with, with Tom and, and some of the other professors from, from Sweden, they could see a potential for a new sort of take on ethnology. And, and so it's, it was sort of, um, we sacrificed some of the cultural history, and, and then instead we started focusing more on on, uh, on consulting businesses and, 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 and municipalities and so on. Uh, so there was a market for it, so to speak, and I think that's that's why uh, applied cultural analysis became a thing in Denmark. And then it was, I think, it was kicked off primarily by this um, now retired Swedish professor Ove Lövgren, who was like. Uh, uh, I think you could say among the, the founders of, 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 of these two programs, he was he was the initiator, and he has he has still has a, a flair for for sort of uh, for applying ethnology and promoting ethnology. So in Denmark, it was more I think that we could see this market for for a new take on on ethnology, and I think that's that's why we we decided to yeah. To, to engage in this in this collaboration with with, with Don, and it's been a tremendous success, yeah, ever since. Yeah. yeah. And from the perspective of the two universities, there was a desire to establish what at that point they were calling joint programs mm. between the two. There was something called the Ersund University mm. uh, at the time, which really wanted to try and bind the two. There was this notion of the Ersund region was was developing. Uh, and this is going to be part of a way of bringing these two large universes together and to be more competitive internationally. Uh, so there was even, uh, from the perspective of both universities, a desire to compete for international students. And yeah. there was an opportunity because of EU funding yeah. also, because yeah. it, the Eurasian region, Lund and Copenhagen are both cities in the Eurasian region. And so, so there was, there, there was EU funding for, for these programs. And, and this is probably, this is one of the reasons why we also, we still do this uh, to some extent, travel back and forth and give lectures. You know, one week we're in Lund giving lectures and one week we're in, in, in Copenhagen and we travel back and forth with the students. And back when the program started, I mean, the reason for doing this was to actually to, to build regional 
it, 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 it was to build the region through through educational activities by bringing the students back and forth. And and one must say, I think that that's an important point to stress that over the years this has become increasingly uh, difficult uh, due to first there was the, the the refugee situation in 2015 and the the COVID situation and, and you just realized how vulnerable a region is and now you could say if we were only had to rely on sort of regionalism and, and, and regional development I think yeah. the problems would have been dead but 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 now we've managed to establish a collaboration which which makes this program survive on Zoom because we know each other and, and, and yeah. Before diving into kind of like, let's say, the belly of the programs, just to share more with our listeners about how do you make that work, um, I wanted to both ask you a question about how do you how do you how have you experienced these initiatives as being kind of like uh, um, um, what was the response of the anthropological community to to the work that you do? And um, have you seen it as a kind of an effort that has um, created riptides or waves in, in other professors or in other uh, universities? One thing I, I was thinking about was the fact that um, as soon as we had the first group of Malka students coming in, I started traveling around Sweden, talking to people in ethnology and other departments in other cities, uh, asking them, telling them about the program and asking them to um, consider our graduates for PhD programs and asking them if they would ever consider them for PhD in ethnology um, because we called it applied cultural analysis. This was not going to be ethnology. This was going to be something in an ethnology department, but something different. Um, and at first, there was a degree of skepticism. Um, and after a while, uh, they became more and more comfortable with this idea. Um, and I think now... There's once again an issue is each student is different. And the fact that you read Malka, this Master of Applied Cultural Analysis, doesn't necessarily mean that you can get into a PhD program in ethnology. But if the person applying has a thesis which is sufficiently ethnological, uh, then they can do that. Our students also are doing PhDs in media communication, in service management, in tourism, in business administration. So we're not producing ethnologists, we're producing scholars who are flexible and can apply this knowledge in other areas in academia afterwards, as well as going out to get jobs outside of academia. I think I think in Denmark, I don't know if it has had a ripple effect. I don't know if we were we were not necessarily the first, but we were we were part of a trend. And I think in Denmark there's another aspect to this because we had a minister of business who who came up who got Fascinating. He, I think he went to the U.S. and and and, and learned a new, a new concept, and that was a, that was a, um, innovation. That was a new thing in Denmark. So when he came home from his trip, he decided to invest heavily in innovation, and then all the the universities jumped, you know, on board and tried to get a piece of the cake. So there were several programs that were sort of developed, trying to to. Yeah, to get their share of this funding for, for, for innovation. So, so, so Marka, as we applied cultural, must have applied cultural analysis, which is the name of our program, was not, I don't know if it was the first, but it was, it's not the only one. And there are, there are several programs in, 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 in Denmark that, that I would say that resemble. And also I know we are, I'm at the ethnology department, at the anthropology department. They, they tried something similar. I don't know if it still works, but there are also some of the other universities where they have similar programs. And we, and we receive students 
from you know from 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 various BA programs. Uh, I think I think what we I don't know. I think the reason why we're still here and the the, the reason why it's it's, it's going well. Uh, uh, I, my analysis is that we always start bottom up. I mean, I always I if I, I always try to build collaborations with what we call to the students we say real clients, but but you say real real uh, partners. Uh, and 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 by partners I mean the kind of businesses, NGOs and, and, and institutions, organizations that we we want to work with. We start with the collaboration, we start with the partnership, within we design the the content of our, mm. our of our courses. And as long as we can attract uh, partners, we can always we can always develop good thinking and, 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 and a good program. And I think and I don't know, you'll have to talk to some of someone else teaching other programs, but I think I think it would be a big mistake if we started out by saying, okay, now we want to give ethnology to company or anthropology to to our partners. That's not how it works because if you just give anthropology to people who are not anthropologists, I mean I would have a hard time knowing what to do with it. Uh, so so we we have this sort of call it bottom up approach and and every year we find new uh, we call them clients or we we reach out to old ones or the, and now they reach out to us so it's all built on this there's always sort of an there's always something at stake something shared uh, and i think that's why the program sort of is still is still around and i think the moment we started we, we, we if we started to sort of think of us if we tried to colonize you know the, the 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 program would would share the fate of many other programs that they sort of you know dried out or you know disappeared because they they would cease to be relevant. So we started with this sort of bottom up approach and and then see where where it it takes us. Just just for those of our listeners that maybe are not aware or are familiar with these two terms, would you one of you quickly uh, mention the difference between ethnology and anthropology? I think there's also a, a slight there's a difference between the way you do it in Sweden and or Tom and, and the way it is in in, in in Denmark. But you could roughly say that that there's been this kind of division of labor in, in, in Denmark, which is of course always sort of conflating and mm. stuff. But you would say anthropology used to have this sort of you know they would study people out there, you know, and, and then and then it would be spatial in the sense that you would go somewhere else and conduct field work in, in mm. Malinowski style. And you can yeah. sort of, of course, you can you can discuss this. But but and then ethnology would have, you know, a temporal aspect to it. You could say sort of the the exotic other could also be someone in the past. And, and what we try to study as ethnologists is what we call everyday life. You know, the everyday life of someone in the past is 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 different from ours. And, and we can make a comparison by looking at what it meant to be, let's say, a peasant in, in the 17th century Denmark, you know, and so cultural history is is an essential part of ethnology, where it's maybe more an add-on, an interesting add-on uh, to 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 anthropology. And you could say the, uh, you know, going elsewhere, we have ethnologies. We, we our our department is is called European ethnology, so we so we 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 study, you know. All over Europe, but and we also go beyond Europe. But but then it's more like it would be like what a, what a, what cultural history would be to anthropology when we when we go abroad and, and do you know studies, yeah. But also again, remember, I, I was trained as an anthropologist. I have a PhD in anthropology, and I'm an associate professor at the ethnology department, and I think <laughs> I'm doing my my job quite okay. So 
So it's not that that different, maybe. But yeah. Okay. Would you like to add something to this, Tom? Or if not, um, I'll take you through my next question. <laughs> I'll, I'll just be academic here. So. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> okay. uh, the difference is basically uh, anthropology in Sweden belongs to the social sciences. Um, and it was more uh, uh, towards issues of the social, whereas ethnology mm -hmm. belongs to the humanities. Uh, and it has origins more looking uh, in the beginning towards tales, folklore, mm -hmm. uh, material culture. Uh, and as Mark is saying, it's got this cultural historic perspective and the notion of peasantry, uh, Swedish mm -hmm. origins. Um, a, a huge beginning for ethnology in Sweden was uh, sort of understanding Uh, what is true Swedishness? It's a discipline which started at the very end of the 19th century. You know, it's really about, uh, you know, modernity's coming, Sweden's changing, but, but who are we as Swedes? Yeah, big questions. Thank you for sharing those uh, definitions. Um, just to make sure of, uh, that, uh, no, also our listeners that might not know these subtle differences are up to speed. Um, I want, I have, I have another question. Um, I wonder if it's the right time to ask it, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, I, I, I find it what I found very surprising and refreshing in, in meeting both of you uh, and also were, were for me personally, um, seeing how you approach working with businesses and, and how you kind of like take on this partnership approach and this kind of looking at the other from their areas of expertise rather than... Um, I don't know, labeling them as, as a dark uh, hearted uh, capitalists uh, that, that should not be engaged with uh, from a real anthropologist. So um, th these are the type of discourses that I hear in my direct environment. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious, how do you approach this, this kind of discourse around capitalism? Like, how do you, how do you, do you think of it? Do you approach it in any way in the way you establish partnerships or engage in longer term collaborations? Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, the students we have are very different, right? Mm -hmm. They're not, it's not a homogenous group. Uh, they come from different parts of the world. They've got different educations on the Swedish side, at least. Mm -hmm. at least uh, they've got different ambitions in life. Some of them want to work in large capitalist companies. Some of them want to work with NGOs. Some of them want to go out and make a difference in the world, maybe municipally. Um, and they'll have discussions and debates in the classroom and around it. They're not in agreement as to what the the good life means or for whom. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means these become active topics you discuss in, in groups, uh, in classroom, in terms of ethics. Um, you know, it, it, just being an NGO doesn't make you uh, morally good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just being a large capitalist company doesn't make you morally bad, bad necessarily. Yeah. Right? There, the question is, and it's a good question to ask students, who do you want to work with? Who are you willing to work with? And why? Where do you draw the line? And that opens the discussion. And that's mm -hmm. a little bit, you know, Mark and I, we're not always, we make a point of saying this is good and that's bad. We say, let's discuss this, right? Uh, that's, uh, I think, one way of thinking about it. What do you say, Mark? No, I agree. And I also, I think we also try to sort of bring it back to, uh, I think it's a cliche to say things are problem-based, but, 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 but we try to think really hard about what is a problem and what does it mean to have a problem? Uh, and you could say you can have a problem which is unethical and, 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 and but, but, but a problem is not a, is not a reflexive analytical position. A problem is sort of bellyache or, or worries or, or anger or, or, or whatnot. So what does it mean to have a problem? And when you work with others, I think it's important to acknowledge 
and understand the nature of their problem. And, and sometimes it takes a lot of sort of skilled interviewing to figure out what their problem is. So if you work with a company, before you can sort of determine what you think about sort of what they do, uh, I think a good starting point is to to explore the nature of their problem. And their problem can be, you know, the kind of problem they have can, can be sort of unethical. You know, how do we exploit someone else the most and, and, and the most most efficiently? Uh, we have to do this because we have to make profit or, or whatever. I mean, that's a problem because if we don't make profit, we if we don't sell weapons, we can't have our business and whatnot. But I think sort of really understanding the nature of the problem, that's step one. And I think if, if we're we can teach our students to truly sort of to really dig into the nature of the other's problem, not as a reflexive point or 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 a discursive point, but as something they have as a phenomenological sort of condition. I think if you start there, uh, I think you've you've you it's half the journey before you start looking for solutions. And I think this is maybe what we spend most of our sort of ethnological, anthropological, theoretical approaches uh, or uh, perspectives on, it's, it's, it's looking into what problem are we dealing with. Um, and, and, and when you do that after that, I think that immediately sparks discussions regarding ethics and whatnot. But the skill here, the academic skill or, or, or what you get trained, what you become good at as a cultural analyst, you're an applied cultural analyst, is to start with the problem. And therefore, when we teach, when we collaborate, if our partners don't have problems, we can't collaborate. And, and I always sell, say to, to, to our, our partners when they contact me and say, can we do something together? And if they say, this would be good for your students, then I say, forget about it. I don't need a co-teacher. I need someone with a problem because what I need to teach my, my, my students is to figure out what your problem is. And if you show up with a case which is good for them, then you're trying to help me with a problem. And, and, and that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm interested in. And that's not what I want to teach them. It's not to deal with my problems. It's to deal with, with yours and to understand what that is. So I think that's the academic starting point. And, and, and this is maybe, I think if you, you could say we kind of shift the focus a bit on who the traditional other is in anthropology. The traditional other is someone we represent. You could say the other in applied cultural analysis is someone we deliver to or share with. So there's a different, there, there's a different approach to representation here. There's a difference between representing and then handing over to. And I think this is the field we kind of explore. Uh, and this is where we become really sort of, I would say, theoretical and where we have a theoretical position within the, the, the field of, of anthropology or, or, or cultural analysis. Yeah. Oh, I, I have. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Let's add on to that. I'd say it's, it's a really important distinction because a lot of times we speak with our, our colleagues in ethnology or anthropology. And so the, the hardest thing I had is being able to go out there and tell someone else what to do. This is the solution. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to do applied cultural analysis, the people we're working with, uh, they don't want us to come and tell you, this is my interpretation, this is one interpretation. If we took another perspective, we can show you another interpretation. Or, Here's a representation. They want a solution. They want an answer. What should I do? And a lot of what Mark and I try to work with our students to do is to let them know that you are knowledgeable. We are developing skills here which you can use. Uh, you have to be able to believe in your abilities and your knowledge so that you can actually help other people. 
uh, it's not enough to just come with an interpretation. Believe in yourself because you're going to have to you need that in order to make your living. Yeah. That, that, does that also mean to a certain extent that I'm going to make here a parallel with cinematography, that you're somehow breaking that fourth wall uh, that normally you have in anthropology? Like you, you know, go into your space and of observation and deep reflection and then you take it back and you represent what you have seen to the to the environment. So so somehow what I what I hear you say is that it, you you you. Reframe uh, the role of, um, of of a meaning maker as an anthropologist in those interactions. That you kind of enter a space of joint sense making or collaboration of some sort in the creation of knowledge with the people that you are studying as well at the same time. Is is that true, or am I am I seeing it incorrectly? Oh, maybe I could put it in a different way. You know, if I if I and again, this is not, <laughs> remember still I I. I I'm not saying this is anthropology is like this or applied mm -hmm. cultural analysis is different, but but you could say there's a big difference between you know going elsewhere, studying people, and then representing them. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and and then you have and so focus is very much on who you write about, who you who you describe, and who you represent, right? And then you write to sort of a more or less anonymous reader. Yeah. In our in our case, the recipient or the reader mm. is someone specific. It's never a general reader. You know, our audience is always somebody specific. And, and, and so we have to target whatever we come up with to this particular person. And, and what we hand over to this person is something they should be able to read. Actually, it's not enough to produce the text. We have to make sure they also read it and it also makes sense to them. So, so, so therefore our focus, you could say, where the, the hard, the hard sort of analytical part is or an extra or another layer to this sort of uh, working with the other is to make the, sure that the other reads, understands, and and is able to make whatever they read there, uh, you know, that they're able to apply whatever they read. Because you could say the easiest thing on, on the planet is to show up and hand over a solution. Mm -hmm. But a solution is not a solution before someone picks it up. And I think to me that's the most fascinating sort of, Handover. Normally, we talk about we talk about a lot a lot about exchange, where I give you something and you give me something back. Actually, I'm I'm a big fan of sharing. I give you something and it only becomes shared the moment you sort of pick it up and make it yours and do something with it. Hmm. And until you do that, it's not delivered. I, I and I can sort of throw things at you if you don't pick them up. Yeah. They're not delivered. And I think to me, mm -hmm. enabling other people to pick up or make sure that what I give them is, is, is something they can actually receive. To me, that's, that's the interesting yeah. Yeah. part of the sharing or, or exchange. So yeah. I, I actually rarely talk about deliverables. I talk about receivables. When I, when I tell my students, when you produce something, make sure that what you give someone else is, is something they can actually receive. Mm. And, and how do you make that happen, Mark? Because I, I, I fully resonate with what you're saying. I think part of the challenge I would imagine of, of any one of those that listen to us that want to, you know, you spend some time inquiring into yeah. something and you want to make sure that what you bring back is used and has values and sticks. What what makes it so that, that people pick this up uh, rather than just push it in a drawer um, and it's disengage quite, with it? It's not simple. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's, it, you know, it's simple, but it's, it's difficult. Yeah. The thing is, 
we should we should eradicate every time we say general we should mm. we should forget about it we should we should stop saying there there's no such thing as a general problem there's no such thing as a general solution problems are always specific they're always somebody's and and solutions are always specific you know they they are solutions to specific problems so if you spend time understanding the person who has the problem you know this specific person interviewing them, observing them, doing mm. whatever we do when we apply our mm. qualitative methods, taking that really seriously positions you or enables you uh, or improve, improves your, the chances that, that you will be able to give them something they can actually apply. So, so it's not like there's no magic wand here. Mm. It's, it's hard work. It's understanding who you actually work with. And you can say in that sense to, to the listeners, it's very trivial. It's very banal. You know, if you understand who you work with, you could probably, you, you know, you can provide better help if you know who you're helping and what their problem is. It's as basic as that. And then what makes us skilled and, you know, professionals and, and what d- defines our discipline are the methods and the perspectives we have that mm. enables us to yeah. Understand the specificity of, of the other. So, so you can say what we try to do here is to deconstruct every notion we can think of, 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 of the so-called natural position or general position. There is no such thing as a general problem. There is no such thing as a general position. And there are no natural positions. They're always specific. Yeah. And this is what we explore. So we don't have a general audience. We don't have a general reader. We have specific others with specific problems. And that's probably also why we are best at sort of, you know, working in one-to-one relationships. Yeah. And I don't know. It, it would be very difficult to, to write a bestseller on doing this because a bestseller has to be read by, you know, hundred thousands of specific others. And, and I think that they're probably difficult to target because they're, but, but I think to those mm-hmm. listening, I would say spend as much energy on the specific other, on their yeah. specific problems. And it's then wonderful. probably. Find there's the specific solutions as well. Yeah, it, it reminds me, Tom, of the story that you shared with me and Rosalie about uh, the presentation, a corporate presentation that you had. Uh, you remember the story, right? I think so. Yes. <laughs> I loved it. It's, it. it's such a practical example of what you're describing, Mark. Uh, Tom, Tom was saying, uh, or maybe you can share it briefly, Tom. Uh, I don't. I, I don't want to do it justice. <laughs> if I'm thinking of the, the same example. Um, Mark was talking about, you know, writing, uh, and I think that's one aspect of what we do. But I think what Mark and I also do is spend a lot of time talking about issues of communication, uh, mm-hmm. how we actually can uh, communicate with different clients, with different people in different ways. Uh, so when we do our theory course in the fall, uh, we do lectures on material culture. We've got lectures on perform- performance theory. Uh, we've got these then in our methods course come up again. Because we don't do methods, we do methodology. And we spend a lot of time working with the students. They have to do pitches. They mm-hmm. have to learn to communicate orally. Um, and not just orally, they have to learn how to do visual presentations in different ways. Mm-hmm. So it also has an artistic aspect to it. It's about putting together PowerPoints in a way which are legible. It's about capturing sort of at an effective level other people. Um, and it's also, I mean, this year, I have students that started understanding. I said, "You're doing a performance. You have yeah. to come in. You have to change your your identity. You are no longer Anna or Steven, right? You yeah, are yeah. you're a professional, and you have to get into that. And 
they started realizing material culture. I said, you bring an object in, pass mm-hmm. it around. It's very different than showing it on a screen or just talking about it. All of yeah. a sudden, you've got a common experience to work with there. Um, and I think you were referring to when I was pitching. Autonomous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The autonomous uh, vehicle project. Oh, please share shortly that story. I found it so good. Uh, it was uh, it was about I didn't want to talk about phenomenology because uh, uh, no one outside of university talks about Heidegger in that way. Uh, <laughs> it's a big word. I can't even say it usually, uh, let alone explain it. Uh, and it was about embodied experiences. It was a, a client who was interested in autonomous vehicles and autonomous driving. Um, and I went in to pitch some of their engineers, and uh, I called one up, and I gave him a set of nunchuckers. and said, go ahead, try these out. I showed him how to do it, and he flailed away and almost killed himself. Um, and then I showed a, a short film of Bruce Lee playing ping pong with nunchuckers. And I said, okay, based upon this, what, what does it mean? If you get to the point... Uh, you can go out and you talk to people about how they drive a car, but they can't actually tell you what they do because so much they've done is now embodied and beyond mm-hmm. being able to pull it out into language. Uh, but you have to understand if you change the car so that people are no longer going to be driving it, you're mm-hmm. doing a totally different fish. Uh, and uh, as part of that, I was doing jujitsu with them also. Uh, I, I, showed <laughs> them, I had them put a gun to my head and I disarmed the, the, this person uh, and the person was shocked when I took the gun from them and aimed it at them and said, I said, okay, this is because I've been doing jujitsu for 15 years, and I am a sensei, and I, I can do it. And I, the point was, you try it now. And mm-hmm. the person couldn't succeed. I said, okay, but in order to get to this point, experiences have to be embodied. And we're talking about driving. We have to rethink driving as embodied. What does it mean in terms of freedom, in terms of other types of things, uh, other values and, and notions of fear, comfort, and other things like that? But So there's a way of, in this, this case, we were a team, and I had another colleague who I knew would do a very good pitch, uh, a scientific, you know, cultural theory pitch, and I figured uh, maybe I can capture their imagination by doing something outside the box. Uh, and I, I t- share this with the students, and I, I tell them, try to dare uh, different ways of pitching. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a performance. And, and Mark, you've got a great performance picture also where you're doing architecture, and, and you've got numbers, and you do a performance with numbers in different ways also. Uh, and it gets, it gets people's attention. Uh, it's yeah. about... Not just standing there being dry, uh, but we have to also try to engage. And that's a lot. It's communicating to engage, not just to um, convince. Yeah. Because if it remains, if it's just intellectual, uh, it's not as effective as it becomes once it becomes uh, an embodied aha experience, an effective experience. Uh, then all of a sudden that raises questions, raises interest, raises curiosity. And then you start to have a, a dialogue. And that's a lot of what we try to do with our our partners is get dialogues going and maintain the dialogue. Oh, wonderful. Um, now, I want to go into the mechanics of the program and the making of an applied program because everything that you have been sharing with me so far, it just makes me think again uh, how different or ha- how absent this kind of skills that you are talking about are in more traditional programs or the ones that I've experienced um, as an anthropologist in my education. So, um Take me through the making of a program like this. Like, what are the elements that you consider integral, um, essential to integrate? What type of things do an applied program offer students so that they are, are better equipped huh, to, to go in the boardroom and don't uh, fear that they can tell a story that reaches hearts and minds? Okay, I can give it a try and maybe I'll <laughs> fail. You know, because, uh, But I want to sort of take it from where Tom just ended uh, because mm. – 
it's true. We've been talking a lot about the other, mm. the others involved in this program. Uh, uh, but but when there's another, there's also I mean there's also like you know the first person the because it really you know in order to 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 impress or explain phenomenology demonstrate in order to demonstrate mm. phenomenology to a group of engineers as Tom did, it it also requires you know, something from Tom, you know. So Tom, he happens to be a trained sort of jiu-jitsu sensei, but it only matters because he can use it as a cultural analyst. Otherwise, he would just be a jiu-jitsu sensei. So <laughs> so who are you as as a cultural analyst? And how do you apply jiu-jitsu to bring across the insights you, you have from, from cultural analysis? So who am I? Uh, is is the crucial uh, question here, just as much as who the others are. And in a program, what we try to do is to include this. The ability to explain who I am as a cultural analyst, I think, is key. Therefore, we, you can say, to me, there are like three questions I want my students from sort of first semester to PhD students to be able to, to there are the three sort of questions they have to be able to answer. What makes theory theoretical? What makes methods methodological? And what makes analysis analytical? And there are there is no sort of single sort of answer to this, but but uh, there there's a zillion of, of, of ways of explaining this. But you have to develop yours. So when you enter a room with engineers and they ask you, but what makes this theoretical? Maybe you have to use nunchucks, you know, in order to to explain. You know, this phenomenology running behind the point Tom is trying to make. What makes this methodological? Well, if we do this, if we ask people these questions, what we'll get access to and what they will reveal and what they will share with us is this or, or that. And, and again, what makes this analytical? You know, an analysis is, is you could you, you pick whatever definition you like. But what happens when we apply a theoretical lens, when we apply phenomenology and apply these methods, what kind of insights will derive from, from doing this? It's as simple as that, and you can have your own definitions and your own way of doing it, but if you can't explain these three, you know, if you can't explain what makes theory theoretical, method, method, methods methodological, and, and analysis analytical, then you are not a cultural analyst. And we do this over and over in the courses, and we do this with different partners. So we have to do it in different ways. We have to explain in different ways. So, so what we do is we, you, you say you have to be able to do all these three, three things at the same time, but then we divide it into sections. So we have a sections where, section where we focus mostly on theory. But the way we, we teach theory then is, is we always attach an exercise. And, and an exercise could be, okay, we can teach, let's say, Bourdieu's notion of habitus and, and whatnot. And then we ask our students to go and take a picture of a front door. And then based on this picture of this front door, tell us what you can tell us about the people living in this house and explain to us how Bourdieu enables you to tell us something about the people you can't see, but just by looking at their front door or you could front door or you could or maybe you will figure out that semiotics is a better way of doing this or a different way of doing this. So when we teach theory, there's always an exercise, there's always methodology, and there's always an, an oral discussion in class where we try to sort of apply the theories uh, in order to, to, to extract some kind of insights. And the same when we teach methods. 
there's always a theoretical approach. When we teach interviewing, we uh, I lecture on Wittgenstein because when you interview, language is the tool you use. So you you have to know uh, philosophy of language or language philosophy in order to know what you do when you conduct an interview or when you do observation. What's the difference between uh, perception and uh, and sensation? If you can't account for this, it's really difficult to say that you use observation as a method. So there's always theory involved. So every time you apply a theory, you are also already uh, implying a method. Or And every time you're, imply, you're, you're applying a method, you're already implying theory. And the outcome of this, you could say, is analysis. So we have this sort of – we move between these three different perspectives, but we do it in different courses where we emphasize one over the other. And we do this over and over again. And then you could say in the end, hopefully they've done it so many times that they I, I always tell them, I, I want to if I wake you up in the middle of the night and ask you what makes theory theoretical? I don't want you to say Foucault. Foucault is just a name. What makes it theoretical? What do you see? What happens when you apply it? What methods would you when you start to look, you know, through the lens of Foucault, what kind of methods does, does that invite? And this, so this is how we teach theory or methods. And our students very often have a hard time sort of distinguishing between mm. sort of is this a methods course or is this a theory course or, or is this a course on analysis? Uh, and then they have to look at the sort of the syllabus and then they can see, okay, it's a course on methodology. So it's probably methods, but we are also reading uh, Heidegger. Heidegger or Derrida or or Donna Haraway. Uh, how, how do you choose, Mark, what type of theories to, to put central to, <laughs> to the course and what in not? A, in a theory course, I have this dogma, and, I, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I, I, it doesn't matter, because okay. what makes a theory theoretical is not because it's the right one, it's because it's a theory. So actually, I would argue, I, I don't do this, but you could do a theory course on old-school evolutionism, social evolutionism, because it's theory, but what makes it theory? Then you could say, chances are you're not going to use it, and if you use it, it's probably not going to be a good analysis. So what we tend to choose are, and of course this is where it becomes less sort of less sort of said, stringent. You know, we choose theories that are sort of that we have experience working with. You know, mm-hmm. Donna Haraway is good because she problematizes this, all these sort of natural so-called natural positions. Lefebvre is good because space is something to, to Lefebvre is, is always produced and always of the present. So, so every time you deal with space, something happens if you apply uh, Lefebvre. And, 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 and phenomenology is, is interesting because we are always present as somebody, some, a body, somebody. And we tend to forget that because that's sort of the, 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 the condition of of being is that we have to sort of, we are, we, we, we are already in the world, but we're also sort of facing the world. So phenomenology also comes in handy. But this is our, my reason for choosing those theories. It's very heuristic. I could do a theory course on our own school evolutionism because the purpose is to, to, to demonstrate what makes theory theoretical. Uh, but we take the ones we, we know well and that work well and, and we've applied in our projects and that are sort of relatively easy to implement. But sometimes the best theories are those that are hard to implement because they sometimes they actually, it's really difficult to do evolutionism mm. with nunchucks. 
Yeah, or and then they, they yeah, make your point, right? That uh, the yeah, point is yeah. not the theory, but how you can see it and how you can use it, right? Yeah. It sounds like almost like a philosophical deconstruction of uh, of these concepts, like back to their bare bones. I think and, an important thing that we had with us the entire time mm -hmm. is the fact that applied anthropology in the United States, where I did my education in the beginning, mm -hmm. doesn't have a very good status in relation to academic anthropology. Uh, and uh, it was a question, what type of ethnologists or cultural analysts are we going to be producing? And uh, I think both Mark and I and our colleagues in this program uh, were dead set on having a really strong academic quality to what's being done here. Uh, but they're also the goal was to go out and get jobs. Uh, and that meant that these students had to be able to do everything that normal, so to say, academic anthropologists could do. They had to know their theory. They had to know their mm -hmm. methods. They had to know the crisis of representation, uh, postmodern anthropology, but they had to do more than that. They had to move beyond that and do things which those programs don't teach. Uh, and that's what Mark is talking about here. You know, it's about constantly, constantly, constantly talking about method theory analysis together. Uh, it's sort of the holy grail of uh, uh, what we're doing. Yeah. That is wonderful. And, and, um, do you have any kind of, for those of our listeners that are interested in diving deeper into some materials or papers or around the, the, this holy grail approach that you have, is there anything out there that, um, that can be easily accessible? No, there isn't because it's not easily accessible. And I'm so fed up with this idea that you can have like a, a brief introduction to something, you know, to brain surgery. Now you have a brief yeah. introduction to brain surgery, its methods and its theory. And the same goes for cultural analysis. Now, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you, but it is a profession. And of course, you should read Hannah Arendt. Uh, Hannah Arendt is, is, is brilliant. Uh, Heidegger is, is, is problematic, but there's something in there we, we need to, Mm. This notion of, of, of home and being in the world is essential. Merleau-Ponty is a good place to start. And I think Derrida's critique of the notion of culture and his focus on difference, mm. you can slide into Lyotard's notion of différent. And, 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 and of course, I would say um, uh, you, should, you should definitely read uh, Judy Butler because you, you should definitely understand that all these so-called natural positions they are constructed, and, and you could say a big part of what we do is to acknowledge that NGOs, businesses, uh, state and municipal institutions are also constantly under construction. And yeah. if we don't understand this, we cannot mm. understand them in their specifics, and then we cannot understand their specific problems. So just go do, I think, yeah. read all this, and then, uh, and then exercise it. It's, it's called a discipline, and it's skill. So we don't have... Maybe we should write it. It could be a bestseller with, with anonymous, <laughs> for anonymous yeah. readers, but, but there is yeah. no sort of a textbook on how to do it easily. Uh, there are tons of them. You could buy them at any airport, and they're called business anthropology. You want to read about the program. Uh, I have written a text on multi-targeted ethnography, which mm. describes the program a little bit. And there is also text in a book, I think it's called Business Anthropology, but which is uh, an anthology with uh, Rita Denny and Patricia Sunderland. And there, Robert Willem and I have also written about the, the program, MOCA. Uh, so yeah. if people are interested in learning a little bit about what we do in the program, they can do that. But they're not going to become particularly good applied cultural analysts by reading those texts. Of course, along with Hannah Arndt and, 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 
and uh, and what you should read Tamudel. Uh, of course, I think that's that's mandatory, yeah. and it is that, on, on, in all our, all our courses. Yeah, that is like a bonus answer to my to my question. But I what I wanted to ask, Mark, and sorry, I didn't want to trivialize the the the, the scholarly work that 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 sits at the foundation of all of these things that we're discussing, but. What, what I wanted to ask more is that if the two of you have written something um, about this topic, if, if there is some form of articles out there where you uh, give more foundation to your own thoughts um, and your own contribution to this body of theory. Ooh, yeah, we are, I'm working on it. I have a text on how to perceive cities, which is a fluffy one built on, it's, 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 it's developed around Heidegger's um, uh, lecture on the question concerning uh, technology, uh, uh, but again, I we and it's not to sound arrogant because we're not, and it's also because I mean I'm I'm really good at at working with with partners, and maybe my my writing is not as as good as my 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 teaching, so it's not like I'm I'm, I'm trying to be arrogant or or anything, but I, I really do think that. There are, there are tons of books that say the same thing as we do, but I think if you can just remember to be specific mm-hmm. and if you can remember to focus on, you know, understanding the nature of someone else's problem. I think, the, uh, Tom, you, you also lecture on Richard Senna's distinction between empathy and sympathy, mm-hmm. and I think that's maybe a good place to start, you know, understanding that, that empathy is not understanding the other it's acknowledging the other being in a situation which can be different from yours, but the fact that you understand it's different from yours is a good starting point. And this notion of empathy from Richard Sennett is, 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 is maybe, I could say, I don't know if it's foundational, but it, it, it definitely inspired me when, when, when thinking about the other is not someone I understand or grasp or comprehend. It's someone I relate to. And I think what I, when I work, you know, really hard, I can maybe get to a point where we resonate. Mm. And that's a good starting point for for taking on someone else's problem because the goal is not to make their problem mine, but the goal is to understand their problem as theirs and from that point develop or enable them to actually make their own solutions. I, I know it sounds really fluffy, but I think that's the sort of – Maybe that's that's the spirit of how we go about things. So I I would promise to our Richard Senate. Wonderful, wonderful uh, author and wonderful reference. Thank you, Mark. Um, I want to take us into another slightly different direction. I mean, you've you've been doing this together for a while now, right? So I wanted to ask you, just as a curiosity now, looking back, are there some things that you have found along the way that you did not anticipate or that were completely the opposite of of what you imagined when when you started this journey? Yeah, it happens, I would say, every year. And it's again, it's going to sound like a cliche because we sit in on each other's lectures. And, 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 and uh, of course, and this is going, I'm going to reveal something to the new students, but, but, but Tom has a tendency to do the same lecture, you know, <laughs> over and over again. And so do I, of course. But what I want to say that, 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 that over the years when I've listened to something that was supposed to be the same lecture, uh, I've, I've, I've discovered new new aspects because again we always work with external mm-hmm. stakeholders or partners, and we try to relate. We may do the same lecture, but we then we use the examples. We draw on examples from from the new clients, and then what is truth or the truth one year might be something completely different the next year. So so for instance, 
personally, I mean, this whole focus on, you know, discovering that there are two categories of others in this kind of anthropology was a new experience to me, you know, and now my focus has shifted from, from, you could say, the traditional others to, to the others closer to me. And actually they have become more and more exotic. So understanding, you know, understanding the businesses, understanding the NGOs and understanding the, the state institutions or municipal institutions has really become something that I find sort of really sort of challenging and interesting. And, and when I started this, you know, I was, I was interested in target groups and customers. I wasn't, but I thought that was, you know, that I thought that was what they asked me to teach uh, students. But now over the years, I realized that this, this sort of really sort of looking into what is a problem, the phenomenology mm-hmm. of a problem, mm-hmm. I think to me is something that I've started to think more about over the recent years, and I'm not done yet. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading right now. I'm really, really inspired by by Lyotard's um, book Différent, where he says actually very often uh, language is not about sort of uh, is not about uh, transferring knowledge. It's about linking onto. So understanding is, is actually very often about sort of the ability to link onto something you don't quite get, and you do that. Communication is not about sort of some kind of truth moving from one place to another. Information is not about being clear and precise. It's about enabling people to link onto what you do. And I think to me, in applied work, becoming someone others can 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 position and relate to, I think is is just as important as understanding the other. So there's a lot of work going on right now to make the students, uh, uh, how you say, what's truly you're clear, uh, truly in, in English. Now we get some Danish in the in the podcast. Well. <laughs> uh, uh, obvious, obvious, clear, clear. Re- no, but also recognizable. You know, mm. if, if the cultural, if they know what who the cultural analyst is, then it's easier to link onto. You can be as crazy as Tom and do nunchucks, but they're easy to to link onto. And I think that kind of skill is exploring this is 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 new to me, and and uh, and it's not the only thing we do, but that's sort of the latest thing I've 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 I've, I've picked up on. Yeah. Okay. What about you, Tom? What has surprised me the most? Uh, I didn't actually believe that I'd see students grow so much as I've seen. Um, I just finished, or Mark and I together just finished this methods course, where as I mentioned before, they have to do pitches. Um, they have to get up and stand in front of us and, and speak for three minutes, and only for three minutes. Um, and to see people who would first get up there, hold a piece of paper in their hands, stutter and, and try to read, and just do horrible, boring pitches, by the end of the course, um, they're actually communicating without a piece of paper in their hand, talking, believing in themselves. Uh, there is such a huge, I'm, I just got a thank you note now from one student uh, who she said it was so wonderful to see my classmates grow so much over those eight weeks. I never thought it would be possible mm. to see that. And that's something which I didn't really expect. I'd never really experienced it that way in other courses and other programs I've worked with. Uh, and the students themselves see it and clap one another on the back, say, Jesus, mm. you really got good. Uh, and uh, see them see their self-esteem expand in this way has been uh, a fantastic benefit from this program. Uh, it's probably one of the few reasons why I, I keep working in the program and keep doing this uh, is that 
they grow. Wonderful. Um, I have one last question for the both of you, and, and this is maybe speaking on behalf of those of our listeners that are now also in universities somewhere around the world considering or thinking, okay, if, if I want to have a go at approaching something like this or designing a program like this within my own uh, space in anthropology or ethnology, how shall I start? Like, how, What would be your advice to those of our listeners that uh, could be in a similar position of what you were several years back? Have the courage to, sometimes when we get nervous, when I get nervous as an academic, you know, I speak about things I know of, you know, I, I, I give lectures and I rant and I, and, and also I always know, you know, when things go really sort of badly, when I, when I work with, with, with clients, when I begin to talk theory, I know it's because I'm sort of, <laughs> I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm so, so it's, it's my way of sort of protecting myself. They might not understand it but it sounds difficult you know and that's because the focus is you know is on me and my my poor performance and i think the first step here is to dare have the same curiosity invested in the 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 others close to you as you invest in 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 those others you used to invest your curiosity in as as an anthropologist so so again if we can Go back to, at the beginning. I said that I worked with architects and it took me at least half a year before I realized that architects could be good at architecture and not just poor anthropologists. I think have the courage to have that interest in others and then believe in yourself because in that room with a skilled, super cool architect, I am the super cool and good anthropologist. Mm. And so believe in that. And if, if there is, there are problems regarding communication. The goal is not to make things so complicated that it sounds sounds difficult. It's maybe the opposite. It's, it's to think, okay, dear architect, the problem here is that you are listening to a boring anthropologist saying things you don't understand. That's a problem. So what's the solution? How do we fix that problem? And I think if you dare to do that, it's, it's going to be easy to find clients or external partners who will build this program with you. Uh, and that's where I think most people complain or find it difficult. The conference, we just, we, we all three attended in Klagenfurt. Uh, what people, what people complained about was how hard it was to find external partners to run projects like this. And I think the, 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 the worst thing you can do is to say, here is what anthropology can give to you. That's a deliverable. It's not, it's not a receivable. You don't, mm. I mean, here, I'm giving you something you don't understand and you might not even need it. Here's what you didn't know. You probably didn't, didn't, know. didn't, <laughs> didn't need. So, so have the courage to, mm. to think of the other as someone you, you, you want to understand. I think that's a, it's, again, it's trivial and banal, but it's difficult. Wonderful. Yeah. And I think, um, a lot of the texts I've read by George Marcus and his colleagues, and we take this in the classroom, the discussions about epistemic partners. What is an epistemic partner? What does that mean? Uh, how can we learn from other people who are out there? Uh, that, that's one thing. But the next step is if we're partners and if we're equals, why do they need us? Um, and I kind of always feel like, yes, we have to respect knowledge and there's kinds of knowledge. But as Mark is saying here, we have to also believe that we have something which they don't have and they want to engage in this partnership because of that. That means that I can give them something 
which is right in their backyard, is right in their organization. Mm -hmm. It's right before their eyes, but they haven't seen it for the past 50 years. Right? That is the power of cultural analysis to, to reveal these types of things to them. And get to say, cheapers, I never saw that. Right? Uh, and it's the belief that yes, you're my partner, we're partners, we're going to learn from one another, I can do this double analysis, but in the end, I actually have something you need. I've got skills and forms of knowledge which you want me to deliver to you or which you want to receive and which you're actually willing to pay me for. Um, so epistemic partners, and it's a great word, it's a great way to think, but we're also more than just partners on an equal footing. I'm a professional. I am a professional. <laughs> I wouldn't think a plumber who couldn't do pipes, right? Yeah, that's it. Nah, uh, Tom and Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been it's been such a pleasure to have you here in this conversation. And I'm I'm again amazed by uh, maybe it's going to sound again very trivial and corny, but I'm amazed with how both of you are so much yourselves. Um, <sighs> Uh, that, that is in, in conversation, and for me, that's, that's the greatest pleasure when I meet when I meet fellow social scientists that are just themselves and they bring their lens into the world, into the conversation. Uh, no. But just to, on a on a on a final note, maybe it's because we have uh, I have a, I have a wonderful colleague, so actually it's not dangerous being myself. I don't have to sort of I don't have to to to. To, to disguise who I am because I have a colleague who, who ha has my back. But also you started on, yeah. on, 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 on talking about languages. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, when I, we started this program, the first year, uh, my, my uh, field work experience was, is, is in France and I, I went to university in France. So I, I had never taught in English when I started teaching Marca. Mm. And teaching with Tom was wonderful because let's say I, taught with someone who wasn't a native speaker or who wasn't Tom, then it could easily have turned into a competition, you know, who's like, who can, who's better at, you know, lecturing in English. But Tom has always been super generous, you know, so I could do sort of, I would read my scripts on Heidegger and Tom, who you would do sort of, he would fill up all the gaps and, you know, and if it started to sound a little weird, he would sort of, you know, just explain how things were without making me look stupid. And I think, if you have that kind of collaboration, you can be yourself. And that also applies to working with clients. Mm. I mean, it's not a competition. I mean, it's not who's the coolest in this room because what we, the reason we're here is not, I mean, I think exchange is over, over, overrated. Sharing is a different matter. When we exchange stuff, I give you something, you give me something back. When we share something, we have one pizza. But I'm willing only to get half because when you get the other half, we get full together and, 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 and then something great happens. So I think uh, as a conclusion here, I would say it's easy to be yourself when you have good colleagues. And as a skill, as a professional, it's your job to create an environment where others can be good colleagues to you. And I think with that, I sort of end my rant, but also my... <laughs> I agree. I agree, Mark. It, it's, uh, it's useful there that uh, we've worked together for so many years now that uh, it's we've always got one another's backs. Uh, and he, we were joking earlier that we give the same lectures every year, but we don't uh, because I've learned from Mark uh, and I start to integrate things which I know he's going to say or he has said 
and I can do it in ways which doesn't have to uh, be competitive or, or uh, be exclusive in any way. Uh, and text which Mark has chosen, I want to teach this one. I'm thinking of Walter Benjamin, for example, on translation. Uh, over the years, I've incorporated that more and more into my mm-hmm. lectures. It, it's his mm-hmm. text, which he should lecture on. But I can do it in a way because I, I know that I can bend this in a different way. And he does the same thing with mine. So it's this give and take, It's it's uh, uh, which uh, we've worked on this now for about 12 years, I guess, uh, working this way. And uh, it's, it makes it actually challenging. It makes it fun. Uh, and it, it is about mutual respect. I have I have a, a final student story. Like Tom, you said you have this student who thanks you because they 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 grew during pitches. I also had a student who said it's, it was the first time the student had ever experienced professors who would disagree in class in front of students, and we do that deliberately. You know, sometimes during a lecture, I can say, well, actually, I don't agree with you, Tom. I th- I, I see it in a totally different way. And and we can only do this because we I know at, at the end of the day you know uh, I really respect Tom and I know again as I can I start to be able to recognize a good architect I can spot a good anthropologist when I see one and I always tell my students you know when you go and work with with with, with external partners and they say oh this is so great we need an anthropologist I tell them no no you don't need an anthropologist you need a good anthropologist and I think. Being good at what you do, I think that's what we try to train our students. That's wonderful. Thank you again for the both of you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us and listening to us. (laughs) Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.